Our scripture text is Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 18, and uh, we'll be reading the first 12 verses uh, this morning. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words and the horn that was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This is God's word. All right. Thank you, Steve. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you today submitted to you, under you. We remind ourselves that, Jesus, you have authority over our lives. You have authority over every life. And for those who follow you, we have acknowledged that. We believed the gospel when we were told that Jesus is Lord. We came under you. We repented and we are repenting. We desire, Jesus to experience everything that you have for us, your power, your love, your truth, your mercy, your grace. And I pray that every person in here would develop by the power of the Spirit that yearning to be with you, to be known by you, to be filled by you, to be completed in you. I pray your blessings over every ear in this room today. Help us, Jesus, as we come to your word. Help us to submit to you, to obey you, to be changed by you. 
in your name. Amen. Um, as many of you know, we are in a series uh, on politics. It's uh, one of those church growth series that we thought we'd roll out and uh, hoping to get a bump. And um, um, actually, it's a series that we needed to roll out because our church, like many churches, are being impacted by unkindness, ugliness, harshness, severity. We're being indirectly impacted by a lack of understanding, a lack of care. Some of us have withdrawn from one another in apathy. I'm not saying that our church is is, uh, destined to burn in the fires of hell. I'm just saying that we've experienced some pain because, let's face the truth, every election cycle brings out the worst in our culture. The worst. The worst. And what I would like to see happen in our church is a cultivated love and understanding. What I'm going for in our church is not, is not homogeneity to where we all think the same way and feel the same way. Nobody can pull that off. What I'm going for is that this very diverse church made up of African Americans and Caucasians and Hispanics and this church that is made up of Methodists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals, this church that is made up of people who come from Roman Catholic backgrounds and Baptist backgrounds and non-believing backgrounds, this group that comes from poverty and from riches and from the middle class, this group that comes from so many diverse streams that we would be able by God's grace to merge together into into one stream with all of our uniqueness, with all of our distinctives, and understand and love and bear with one another. Because, first, we have all been made in the image of God. And whether or not you and I agree or see eye to eye on some of these things is irrelevant. You were made in the image of God. I was made in the image of God. So we must honor one another. But beyond that, for those of us who have been raised up in Christ, we are one in Christ. And that has to go from being a Bible verse and a lyric and a song from something sentimental to something that is real in the way we live out our lives. You and I, if you follow Jesus, are one in Him. And so more important than political opinions... More important than how we feel about certain things happening in our society, what is more important than that is the preservation, the longevity of our relationship in Jesus. If politics are a fault line that divides us, then politics are more central to our identities than Jesus is. Jesus must outpace our politics. This is why we're talking about that. We're spending eight weeks on this. Next week is going to be the last session. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But at the same time, as Steve mentioned a moment ago, he felt the heaviness of this text. It's a heavy text. It's a very political text. Very political text. Just to give some context here, as he mentioned, we're going to be going through the first 12 verses of Daniel 7. 
And I want to remind you of what's going on here. Daniel is probably in his 50s, maybe his 60s. He's not a young man anymore. You see, about 30 or 40 years earlier, Daniel was a teenager living in Jerusalem. And when he was living in Jerusalem, he experienced the third Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. His entire childhood, over his entire childhood, the Jews lived in terror of what the new, big, strong empire might do. And that's the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. Will they invade? And they did. They did. uh, Jewish kings had uh, practiced diplomacy with the Babylonians and were able to hold them off for about 30 years and, and give them gifts and partner with them in certain ways in order to keep them at bay. But one thing led to another. And when Jerusalem began to have diplomacy with some of Babylon's enemies, like the Egyptians, that's when the Babylonians said, enough is enough. We are going to stamp out the Jews. And they attempted to do that. They besieged the city. There were untold multitudes who were murdered, brutalized. And the best of the best, most notably, the upper class nobles' children. They watched their families be murdered by the Babylonian armies. Daniel was probably one of those who saw his family, his siblings murdered before his eyes. And was carried away into Babylonian captivity where he spent the rest of his life. The rest of his life. For decades, he was a forced politician. He served in the court of the king of Babylon. First, Nebuchadnezzar, and then as we see in this text, Belshazzar. He took over after his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. He was in the court of the very king and the very government that slaughtered his mother, his father, his siblings, his friends, his classmates, his city, the city of God. This is the context here. It's been a lot of years. It's been a lot of hard years. A lot of hard years. The last time, at least recorded in the book of Daniel that Daniel received a word from God was about a decade. About a decade. Almost ten years transpired since the last time he heard God speak to him. He's been living in faithful silence for a decade. Faithful silence. Serving under multiple despotic emperors. The front page issues that we see on our newspaper every day, he experienced firsthand. Political intrigue and deception and corruption. Political diplomacy. The the constant threat of war because now Babylon was also living in fear. Because there was a new empire that was up and coming called the Persians. Actually, the media Persians, the Medes and the Persians merged into one empire and then they took over Babylon. And so his entire life, his entire life, Daniel never felt safe. He never knew what peace was. 
He never had a chance to take for granted a great history where God's people were strong and protected. He never experienced that. Never experienced that. He experienced severe racial discrimination to the point that one time when he was praying, people, his opponents, went and told the king and he was thrown into a lion's den to suffer capital punishment because he prayed to the Jewish God, Yahweh. This was Daniel's life. This was his life. And what we can see when we look at Daniel's life, when you read those chapters in Daniel, is something very, very clear and convicting for all of us what it looks like to trust God in uncertain times. And for Daniel, trust was this. Faithful service and worship throughout all the danger and the fear. Faithful worship and service throughout all the danger and the fear. You see, there was a time where some false prophets emerged in Babylon. And they began to tell the Jews, withdraw from Babylon. Don't serve the Babylonians. Don't pray for the Babylonians. And Jeremiah, writing from the ruins of Jerusalem, sends a letter to the Jews in Babylon. And he said, those guys are false prophets. They're telling you that God's going to come deliver you really soon. And guess what? He's not. He's not coming for a long time. Because God had already shown Jeremiah that they were going to be in captivity for at least seven decades. And he said, here's what you need to do while you are living in exile in Babylon. You need to seek the good of the city where you live. Seek the good of the capital of Babylon. That practices Ritual sacrifice of people that worships false gods that destroyed Jerusalem, the city of God. Seek the good of that country. Seek its good while you're living there. This is the context that Daniel is living in. And so let's go to verses uh, uh, 1 through 8 here. Because in 1 through 8, we read about these really interesting beasts that come out of the sea. These interesting beasts. Now keep in mind, this was the first year of a new president, quote unquote. (laughs) Belshazzar, first year. Things were shifting. Things weren't at peace. There was chaos. There was questions. There was fear. What's happening? Belshazzar knew that his reign was going to be short. As a matter of fact, he was murdered by the media Persian Empire. And then Daniel ended up serving the media Persians. It's a crazy story when you read through the book of Daniel. And he has this vision. And in verse 2 it says this, that there were these winds from heaven. It's interesting that he says from heaven. He didn't say winds from the gates of hell, from the fires of hell. He said winds of heaven came and began to stir up the seas. And out of the seas emerged four beasts. Four beasts. So heaven messed with earth and beasts happened. That'll kind of mess with your theology. And so look at verse 4. Here's the first beast. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. That's interesting. 
Because earlier in uh, Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 19 through 22, Jeremiah, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, called him both an eagle and a lion. An eagle and a lion. He said the first beast was walking like a lion and had, it was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked from it, ripped off. And this beast was lifted up from the ground from walking on all fours and began to walk on two legs, two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Now, if you know anything about the Babylonian Empire, there's two powerful symbols that portray the Babylonians where it was an eagle and a lion. And it's interesting because there was this, there was this um, phenomenon that took place where Nebuchadnezzar one day was walking around on the roof of his palace and he was uh, looking over his whole kingdom and thinking, man, I am awesome. Whew. Look at all this property I own. All these people who were gathered before me, man, I am absolutely awesome. I am powerful. And he began to gloat and take pride in that all this kingdom that he had, all this rule that he had was acquired by his own power. And God said, no, that's not the way it happened. And God sent insanity upon him. God made him insane. And he began to behave and act like an animal. And for years was kept in a stable where he was treated and fed and kept like an animal. And if you look back in Daniel chapter 4, suddenly his mind comes back to him after this punishment from God for his pride. And this is what he says in Daniel 4, 34 through 37. At the end of the days, the days of his insanity, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. There's something there. I lifted my eyes to heaven, to God, and my reason returned to me. Man, that will preach. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Listen to what he says. He's like writing worship songs now. Uh, I wonder if Hillsong ever picked this up. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Now this is a man who worships pagan gods and sacrifices people, and he's worshiping Yahweh, our God. If you're like, Yahweh, like what is that? Whenever your Bible has the word, the word Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, what that's, that's a signal that the word in Hebrew is Yahweh. That's the word that God used to reveal himself to Moses at the burning bush, Yahweh. And so he praises Yahweh and he said his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Whoa! Nebuchadnezzar went from walking around gloating about how powerful he was to admitting, I have no power over Yahweh, over God. He rules everything. And the unsettling message in this text is this, that the Babylonian empire that Nebuchadnezzar have, had with all of its evils, that authority was given to him by God. 
that will mess with you. If the only verse you have in your Bible underlined is God is love, that will mess with you. That will mess with you, man. And don't ask me to explain that. I can't. One of the things that I'm understanding as I grow, as I continue to delve more and more and more and more into the Scriptures is try not to explain things that God doesn't explain. We've got to be okay with living in mystery. And there's mystery here. How can a God of love allow a despot like this to lead this gross, grossly ferocious nation? I don't know, but he did. And he took Nebuchadnezzar to task when Nebuchadnezzar said, you know what, this is all because of me, my military might, my shrewd leadership of our country. God said, uh-uh, no, no. And he made him insane. He made him insane. The point is, is that this first empire that Daniel is looking, emerging from the sea, is the Babylonian empire. It's the Babylonian empire. You might say, well, why, why the sea? To the ancient, to the ancients, The sea was scary. It was horrifying. This is why in the book of Revelation, it also portrays the beast emerging from the sea. This is why at the end of the book of the Revelation, it says that the new heavens and the new earth, in that there will be no more seas. It's not saying there's not going to be water and oceans and lakes and seas and streams. I think we're going to get to fish in the, new, in the New Jerusalem. I really do. I'm not into that, but I think those of you who love fishing are going to get to fish in the new creation. The point is, is that was a poetic way of saying that there won't be any threatening demonic forces that we have to concern ourselves with when Jesus repairs and remakes everything. The seas represent the demonic. And so out of the sea crawls this first horrifying sea creature, Babylon. Babylon. Then it says in verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Most biblical theologians and scholars Uh, strongly believe that this refers to the next empire that came around, the Media Persian Empire. The reason it has three ribs in its mouth is probably because of the three kingdoms that it destroyed before it, one of those being Egypt, another Babylon, another possibly a country called Lydia. And all these countries were destroyed by this bear that was lifted up on one side, indicating probably that this Media Persian merger the Persians were much stronger than the Medians. And so maybe that's why the bear is portrayed as being raised up or stronger on one side. This is the Persian Empire. Verse 6, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. Four wings. Four wings. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. The beast had four wings and four heads, and it looked like a leopard. It looked like a leopard. Why does it look this way? Well, leopards are known for their stealth, for their speed. The number four is often often a symbol of the ends of the earth. You hear in biblical writings and other ancient writings about the four corners of the earth, the four corners of the earth. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, he talks about how he will send his angels to gather up the elect from the four corners of the earth. Four corners. These four wings and these four heads possibly represent a a worldwide conquest of some sort. Well, history tells us 
what happened after the media persian empire the greeks emerged they were the next beast to crawl out of the sea and the the greeks were led by this man maybe you've heard of him called alexander the great and he so quickly took over the known world from greece all the way to the outskirts of the country of modern day india he had done that by the time he was in his early 30s he had taken over the entire known world when he died at the age of 32 or 33 his kingdom was separated into four kingdoms maybe that's why the animal has four heads and four wings alexander the great's Empire. Now, keep in mind that by the, when Daniel is writing this, the media Persians have just conquered Babylon. The Greeks are, nobody's heard of the Greeks yet. And so Daniel is writing this prophecy centuries before these things are happening. This is so jarring to people who, are, who don't accept the Bible as the Word of God, that they've tried to say, like secular scholars have tried to say, this must have been written way after Daniel, not at the time of Daniel, because there's no way he could have known this. But God knew. God knew. Of course, there's no evidence to suggest that it was written much later than that. So, pardon me, I'll, say, I'll spare you more biblical history. Um, I can tell some of you are like, oh, I do not watch the History Channel. Um, I don't anymore since they started doing ghost shows all the time. Okay, so you've got the Greeks. Now, now uh, you've got your next uh, uh, big bad empire that's on the rise. And check this out, verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. This is where it's starting to get really murky. Bear with me. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking great things. Maybe making proclamations like Nebuchadnezzar had made. Look at how great we are. Look at our iron teeth and our feet that stamp out all of our enemies. It's almost universally accepted that what this is talking about is the great Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at the time of Jesus Christ. A Roman Empire that's territory stretched further than Alexander the Great's. A Roman Empire that was more torturous and brutal than any that had ever come before it. Remember last week, we talked about how the Roman Empire, when it invaded Israel, just a few years before Jesus, there were times where the Romans would crucify two, three, four thousand people in one day on the side of the road to send a message to the Jews, don't you dare rebel against us. Don't you dare do that. This is largely agreed that it's talking about the Roman Empire. It can't be compared to any animals like lions and eagles and bears and leopards because it's different than anything we have ever seen and really represents the dawn of a modernized type of government that we even experience today in our culture. When you go to our courthouses, they look a lot like Roman architecture. Rome 
set the standard for politics and government for the next 1,500 years, 2,000 years. Rome represents a lot here. Rome surpassed all these other empires in power, longevity, influence, ruthlessness, and dominance. Now, I want to make this point here really quick. This sample of four world empires, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, this is a sampling of all world empires and secular governments. All. They all share the same disposition, corruption, power, money. They all prize power over people. They all, in a way, stamp people under their feet. Just look at world history for the last 2,000 years and beyond. What civilization can we point to that displayed the traits of Jesus, mercy, peacemaking, What is it? I don't know of one. These empires represent all the empires that have ever existed and all the nations that ever will exist, no matter how many times we change the world map with our diplomacy and wars in the future. All of these empires represent human governments and how they are innately corrupt and opposed to God. Now, a couple points really quick. We're coming in for a landing. This does not mean that we are to hate and despise our country or our government. This does not mean that we are to abandon our government and become politically apathetic. That is not what this is saying here. That's not the point of this. All through the scriptures, the greatest followers of Jesus, of God, of Yahweh, worked for justice for the oppressed. Almost every figure that we see, almost every hero of faith in Hebrews 11 was in politics to some degree. So this is not an anti-political thing. This is not saying politics is not worth your time. Forget about it. Just do prayer and intercession and love Jesus. That's not what this is saying. That's not what this is saying. It is saying, though, that we need to make sure that we beware of falling in love with our governments and becoming so nationalistic that our love for Jesus is in the back seat compared to our love for our country. This also means something very powerful when it comes to political action. Remember that Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, if you've read Daniel, you'll remember that every single day Daniel went to his little cubicle where he was assigned to live. And he had windows that he could open. And he would open those windows, and as one little mercy that God gave Daniel when he was in captivity all those decades, one small little mercy was that his window faced in the direction of Jerusalem. And every day he would open his windows, and he would stand with his prayer shawl draped over his shoulders, and he would raise his hands. And he would quote the scriptures that he had memorized as a young child, praying for God to restore Israel to its rightful place. Many days he wept in that window. Many days he was overcome with sadness and grief. Daniel was living in the in-between. 
He was living in a time where God was judging his people. But at a time where he had been given a hope that one day God would return. And all things would be made new. He was living in that in-between. And we are also living in the in-between. We are as well. The answer to our sadness is not a better president. The answer to our sadness is not digging in, locking in fights and struggles over power. The answer to our sadness and our grief and the brokenness of our world, and please don't hear this as a cliche because I don't mean it that way, is Jesus. To be immersed in Jesus. To be captured by Jesus. If you will, to be possessed by Jesus. To be swept up by Jesus. That we Americans who have been trained to make Jesus a hobby, he would go to being our occupation. He would be our trade. That Jesus would be our vocation. That Jesus would be everything. We must open our windows to Jerusalem and pray like Daniel did. Our ranting, our protest, our anger, our clenched fists must yield to prayer and dependence on him. It must. I'm seeing the runway. Bear with me for another moment. The scriptures say that as Daniel looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Anybody still have a paper Bible in front of you? Anybody have a paper Bible? Rhonda, you got a paper Bible? Anybody have a paper Bible? Some Swahart girls do. They were raised right. So paper Bibles, I see you paper Bibles in here. Have you noticed in your, and maybe your, maybe your digital Bible and your, and your, your iPhone or your Android says the same way, but have you noticed that at this part, the writing is now center justified? Is that true in your Bible? Is it center justified? You know, where it's like bumped over? You know what that hints of? What, is, what does that say? Anybody, English people in here? What does that indicate when it's center justified? Pros. Or, po, 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 not poor, poetry. Prose or poetry. We are entering into art now. Now, you may not be into poetry. I'm kind of not either. People start waxing poetic. I can quote a couple of things, and then once that, I'm like, hey, let's go see a movie, you know. But I'm not really, not really not in poetry that much. But, but poetry begins to happen here. Why is it that poetry begins to happen here? Because he's already been talking poetically. Leopards with four wings and bears with ribs in its mouth and an eagle, that part eagle, part lion that walks like a man and can think like a man. Like, what is going on? That's very poetic. Yet, when you get to this part, when Daniel begins to experience a revelation of the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, the writing, the writers, influenced by the Holy Spirit, say, you know what? We need to center justify this baby because now we're in the realm of beauty. We are in the realm of love. We are now in the realm where Yahweh is going to care for Daniel's heart because these images are terrifying. And friends, we need this because a lot of us are scared right now. We don't know what's coming down the pike. We don't know what's happening in our world. 
When the director of the FBI says that the next few years there may be uh, an ISIS diaspora in our country, that is frightening. This world is telling us that we have no control. And this is where we need to lift up our eyes to heaven like Daniel did and begin to engage in the beauty of God. So if you would, bear with me while I read these few verses for a moment. Verses 9 through 12. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked. What's this all saying? That while all these beasts are climbing out of the water terrorizing our lives. God is standing over all of human civilization sovereignly, in power, assessing, judging, evaluating, lording. We can trust Him. That in the chaos of our lives, He is standing over us with his judgment book, his legal books opened, with 10,000 standing around him who are righteous, and he is looking down on our lives, and he is not inactive or apathetic. He is lording our lives. He is superintending our lives. He is with you through your cancer. He is with you through your diabetes. He is with you through the uncertainty of the decisions that your children are making. He is with you through your pain. He is with you. He is with you. He is with you. And he's not just hanging out there doing nothing. He is superintending your life. He is. I looked, and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking... And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And now look at verse 12. And this is where we're going to have to learn how to be patient and live with mystery. Live with the question why without growing bitter towards God. And in verse 12 he says, As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the power of these dominions have been broken, but they are still allowed to run amok in this earth. I don't know why. But remember, Daniel is scared right now probably. A new king is in charge. Belshazzar is going to be killed very, very soon. And then another king will take over from the Persians. Daniel doesn't know if he's going to live another day or two. And God is giving him a vision that is terrible and scary. And then he's helping Daniel to see something very, very beautiful. That God is in control. Trust him. So here's a few takeaways from today. The first is this. God is sovereign over the earth right now. Right now. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, that's in there. God is sovereign over the earth right now. From last Friday to just a couple of days ago, 100 children in Aleppo, Syria were killed 
due to the civil war there. I don't know about you, but when I see those images online, that makes me feel sad. When I see children swimming in bomb craters, when I hear about a hospital caring for those who have already been bombed, get bombed. Tens of thousands of people, actually almost half a million have been slaughtered in Syria during the Civil War. Why? Because of power. Who gets the power and what are they going to do with it? When a children and a teacher are shot on a school playground in South Carolina by an unstable teenager who just murdered his father and just yesterday one of those sweet children passed away, a six-year-old, we are forced to ask the question, why? God, why? But God is sovereign over the earth right now. When 52 million babies have been killed in the womb from 1970 to 2012, according to the Centers of Disease Control, we are faced to ask the question, God, why? Why? 52 million empty high chairs. Remember, my friends, that God was encouraging the Jews who were suffering with this prophecy. I am sovereign over the nations. Trust me. Here's the second point. Our righteous works must outpace our self-righteous ranting. Our righteous works must outpace our self-righteous ranting. Two weeks ago, I made an appeal for people to contact me directly if you wanted to be a part of a social justice think tank at our church. If you want to help me figure out ways in this community that we can minister to mothers and children with HIV, the homeless, refugees, the people who are living in our community who are hurting, the people that Jesus says that if you do it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. I asked you to reach out to me. I'm going to make that appeal again. If you want to be a a serious part of a think tank to help identify areas where we can be getting involved as a church now, then contact me. Chris, Chris at RenewalMemphis.com. C-H-R-I-S at RenewalMemphis.com. And as I said a couple weeks ago, if there are complaints, Denise at RenewalMemphis.com. So email me. Our righteous works must outpace our self-righteous ranting. A few of you folks have reached out to me already. Thank you. Bear with me. I just want to give us a chance to think think this through, make sure emotions aren't driving us, but I will be getting with you and uh, giving you some and getting with you about how we're going to move forward and take the next step. Two two last things. Um, we don't have the right, we don't have to fight for power now because we will be the ones in charge one day. This is what we're going to be focusing on next week. If you've been waiting for like the positive, encouraging politics sermon, that's next Sunday. It's finally coming. Week eight is going to be positive, encouraging K-love, okay? Until then. We don't have to fight for power because we will be the ones who are in charge one day. Those ten thousands of thousands, those weren't just onlookers of the court. They were participants in the court. They are the righteous the redeemed, 
those who've been washed by the blood of Jesus. Former porn addicts, child abusers, wife beaters, felons, people who have made terrible mistakes who found the blood of Jesus and were washed by that blood. They are now hilariously the judges of the universe. Amazing. And fourth, we are called to faithfully serve and worship throughout all the uncertainty. Like Daniel, we serve Babylon, but we don't put our hope in Babylon. We ground ourselves in prayer. So let us open our windows to Jerusalem, figuratively speaking, and let us pray for our city, for our political leaders, for our whole civilization. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your mercy. You are wonderful, Lord Jesus. We need you. We love you. Shake us. Move us out of our apathy. Make us and turn us into people of prayer and intercession. Let us be people who yearn after your presence. And let us be people who have a holy obsession over bringing healing to this broken world. In Jesus' name, amen.